Heavenly Father, thank you that we don't have to guess what you're like. Thank you that uh, instead we have eyewitness accounts of your son, Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. And so as we look at him, we see what you're truly like. But we know that um, on our own, we don't have eyes to see. And so we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us so that we would truly see and respond in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today's passage marks the start of a new section in Mark's gospel, actually uh, the final kind of climactic section of his gospel, as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Um, If you've been with us um, for the last few weeks, uh, we've been on the road uh, with Jesus, so to speak, traveling to Jerusalem and thinking about what it means to follow him. Uh, But now we've arrived at our destination. We've got there. We're here at Jerusalem. And as Jesus enters that city there is an unveiling or or a revealing of who he is. So Mark's been clear from the very start of his gospel about who Jesus is. So in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he tells us this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, God's chosen, promised king. But up to this point in his gospel, that key truth about Jesus has been hidden. So um, when in chapter 8, Peter finally confesses and says, you're the Messiah, Jesus immediately tells the disciples to keep it quiet, not to tell anyone. But now finally, as Jesus reaches Jerusalem, the time for secrecy is over. As he comes into the city, he announces himself as king, as, as God's Messiah, with two dramatic and very public actions. So first, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, to the cheers and shouts of the crowd. And then he walks into the center of the city, to the busy, bustling temple courts, and starts driving out the traders and flipping over tables. Pretty dramatic entrance. And I wonder what you make of what Jesus does. Is that what you'd have expected? If I'd asked you, what two things is Jesus going to do to really announce his kingship, his messiahship as he comes into Jerusalem, is that what you'd have guessed? (laughs) Perhaps um, you're still relatively new to this Jesus stuff. You've been uh, with us maybe for the last few weeks, maybe for the last few months, and you're still trying to work out who this guy Jesus is and, and what you think of him. And to be honest, you're not really sure what he's up to. What, what's the big deal with the donkey? Why, why do the crowd suddenly start praising him in a way we've not seen before? Or maybe um, you've been following Jesus for, for years, decades even, and you think you know who Jesus is and, and what Jesus is like. But as you look at what he does in the temple, as you look at what he does with the fig tree, it doesn't actually seem to fit with your understanding of Jesus. It looks almost out of character. It's, it's not what you'd expect at all. And it wasn't what they expected back then either. The Jews, God's people, the people who lived in Jerusalem for the most part, they were expecting a Messiah. They were waiting expectantly for God's promised king. But they were expecting a king who would come in power, in military might. And Jesus comes in humility. They were expecting a king who would bring judgment on their enemies, on the nations 
And Jesus warns that judgment is coming on them. So he is God's promised, long-expected king, and yet he's not the king anyone expected. So as we try to understand the significance of Jesus' actions, we're going to take those two aspects of his arrival in turn. At first, a king who comes in humility, and then a king who comes in judgment. And then finally, we'll think about how Jesus calls us to respond. So first, a king who comes in humility. So if you look down with me um, at the start of our passage, chapter 11, verse 1, page 1015, um, Mark tells us that as Jesus approached Jerusalem, um, verse 1, Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead of him, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt that is a young donkey tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and it will be sent back here shortly. So, Then Mark tells us in quite elaborate detail about how they follow all of Jesus' instructions. So they go to the village, they find the colt just as Jesus has said, Um, somebody asks them what they're doing when they take somebody else's colt away, and they answer as Jesus told them to do, and then they bring the donkey back to him. Why does Mark labour the point? He's usually so sparing with his words, and yet here he really goes to town on this donkey-cat-getting mission. (laughs) It's because he doesn't want us to miss the significance of what is going on. Jesus, in the gospel, has walked everywhere so far. That's how he gets around. Um, But now, as he approaches Jerusalem, he says, go and get me a donkey so that I can ride a donkey into the city. And Mark wants us to see that Jesus is consciously, deliberately, intentionally fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. A prophecy that God's king, the Messiah, when he came to Jerusalem would enter not on a warlike stallion but on a donkey that prophecy is uh, Zechariah the prophet Zechariah uh, chapter 9 verse 9 no need to turn there but here's what it here's what it says rejoice greatly daughter Zion shout daughter Jerusalem see your king comes to you righteous and victorious lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey hundreds of years before Jesus was born, Zechariah had prophesied by the Holy Spirit that when the Messiah came to Jerusalem, he would come on a donkey. And so what Jesus is doing is he is deliberately fulfilling that prophecy. He's saying in actions that speak louder than words, guys, I'm the Messiah. I am God's chosen king. But of course, riding a donkey into Jerusalem doesn't just tell us that Jesus is God's king. It also tells us lots about what kind of king he is. So picture the scene for a minute. Jesus is riding in on a colt, a young donkey. It might well not really be big enough for him. Right? It might be more fit for a child, a child-sized donkey. And he's not got a saddle or or reins, or anything to kind of make it look proper. He's, they've just got some disciples have thrown some cloaks on the back of the donkey, so he's kind of sitting there with his, on these rumpled cloaks, and in front of him and behind him, guys are throwing their cloaks onto the road and cutting off branches. It's a bit of a mess. It's not a picture of grandeur, of majesty. There's no gleaming metal. There's no glittering gold. There's no red carpet. Instead, it's a picture of humility, of of 
gentleness, of, of lowliness. As Zechariah says, your king comes to you lowly, gentle, humble, riding on a donkey. Jesus is a king who comes in humility. He himself put it brilliantly in our, our passage last week. He said, for even the Son of Man, that is even I, the king of the universe, did not come to be served. Well, that's what, hang on, that's what kings always are about. That's what being a king is all about. It's about being served. I did not come to be served, but to serve. And to serve how? Well, by giving my life as a ransom for many. That's where his humility is heading. That's where it's taking him. That's where it's drawing him. It's drawing him to the cross. His humility, his desire to serve and love others above himself is drawing him inexorably to his death. And so in some sense, riding in a donkey is just a picture. The true humility of Jesus isn't that he chooses to ride on a donkey. The true humility of Jesus is that he rides in at all. He knows that by riding into Jerusalem, he's riding for his death, and yet he comes all the same for you and for me. Because he knows that only through his death can we be set free. A king who comes in humility. But also a king who comes in judgment. A king who comes in judgment. Now, as I move from that word humility to that word judgment, I wonder how your emotions move. Humility is a beautiful thing we all want to appreciate. Judgment, I think our culture is pretty conflicted about judgment. Because on the one hand, we want to say that we've moved beyond judgment. Judgment's a thing of the past. We have embraced tolerance. We don't judge. Each to their own. Everyone should do as, as, as they see best. But whatever's best for you, right? No judge. But even a quick glance at Twitter would suggest that's not the reality. The reality is that we love to pronounce judgment on others, particularly if we don't know them. And particularly if they're outside our group. They're clearly in the out group, whatever our in group is. And if we're not on Twitter, we'll do it to our friends. We'll judge others outside of our group. And if we don't do it to our friends, we'll do it in our hearts. We love to judge other people. But we hate being judged ourselves, right? It's, it's a double standard. We say, oh, you look, look, hang on. It's my life. It's my choice. Right? But those guys over there, what they're doing is terrible. And they should be punished. Okay, double standards. And the Jews of Jesus' day, well, they were less conflicted about judgment. They were pretty open about the fact they were, they were pro-judgment on other people. That was their great hope, that the Messiah would come and bring judgment on the nations, destroy them, vindicate Israel. We're not going to get judged. But as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he reveals that God doesn't play those games. God will not operate his judgment on that kind of double standard. Instead, judgment is coming on God's own people. And Mark structures these next verses, verses 11 to 21, very carefully to help us understand what's going on. So first in verse 11, Jesus enters the temple. He looks around. He makes an assessment. And then he goes home for the night. And then what Mark does is he sandwiches Jesus' actions in the temple 
with the incident of the fig tree. So it goes fig tree, 12 to 14, temple, 15 to 19, fig tree, 20 and 21. And the reason he does that is because he wants us to understand those two incidents together in light of one another as two pictures, two signs of God's coming judgment on his people Israel. And that is the key to understanding what on earth is going on with the fig tree. Okay? And on the surface, this looks really bad for Jesus. Right? It looks vindictive, it looks spiteful, it looks petty. It looks like exactly the kind of thing that you'd think Zeus or some other kind of bad god does, right? I've got power, bad fig tree. Right? It looks like Jesus is hungry and grumpy, because who's not been there? Right, hungry and grumpy, comes to the fig tree looking for fruit, no fruit, stuffy fig tree, right? Not a great look. Out of character. But this isn't an aberration from Jesus, it's an illustration. It's not that he's lost his temper. It is that he wants to show in a really powerful way to his disciples. He wants to give them a picture of what's going to happen to Israel. In the Old Testament, the fig tree is one of the prophet's favorite pictures of Israel, God's people. And what's important, what's significant, what's unusual about this fig tree is that there are leaves but no fruit. So from a distance, it looks good. That's why Jesus goes over. But when Jesus gets close, when he investigates, he finds that the fig tree is fruitless. The tree, so to speak, is all show, all leaf, no substance, no fruit. All show, no substance. And Jesus judges the fig tree. Verse 14, he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And when they return to the fig tree in verse 20... They saw the fig tree withered from the roots. It's destroyed. It's done for. Mark wraps that story of the fig tree around Jesus in the temple because he wants us to see the parallels between the fig tree and the temple. The fig tree is an illustration. It illustrates the spiritual condition of the temple and, and through the temple of God's people. From a distance, just like the fig tree, the temple looked impressive, almost unimaginably so. It was a magnificent building and a hive of religious activity. But when Jesus gets up close, when Jesus looks at the temple, there is no fruit. Just like the fig tree, it's all show, no substance. The temple is not fulfilling its purpose. It's not bearing fruit. That's at the heart of what Jesus is getting at when he explains his actions in the temple. So you look down with me at verse 17. And this is what Jesus says. And as Jesus taught them, he said, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. So let's unpack that together. Jesus quotes Isaiah 56 to show what the temple should be what it would look like for the temple to bear fruit, which is to be a house of prayer for all nations. So God had given the temple to his people Israel, a special blessing for them where God would live among them, a place where they could come in prayer to him, where they could offer sacrifices to him and receive forgiveness. But God's purpose in giving the temple to Israel was never limited to Israel. It was always bigger than that. They were supposed to be, as God's holy people, a light to the nations. 
to the world around them so that people from all over the world, from all nations, would want to come and worship Israel's God, the God of the world, in the temple. That the temple might become a house of prayer for all nations. That was the purpose of the temple. That's what it would look like for God's people to bear fruit. And Jesus says, no fruit. That's not what has happened. Instead, he quotes Jeremiah chapter 7 to give his damning verdict on what the temple has become. That is, a den of robbers. Not because there's anything wrong with the temple. It was a gift from God. But because of the failure and sin of God's people Israel. So that passage that Jesus is quoting from in Jeremiah, uh, that speaks of a people who have turned their back on God fundamentally who murder, who steal, who commit adultery, who follow other gods, and yet think that because God dwells among them in the temple, they're safe from judgment. A people who are treating the temple like a criminal safe house, like somewhere you can hide safe after your bad deeds, treating the temple like a robber's den. making the temple a place of darkness and hiddenness rather than a light to the nations of the world. And so while the temple might still look impressive, while there might still be lots of religious ritual, lots of sacrifice, lots of show, there's no substance. There's no fruit. Jesus says the temple's rotten. And so just as Jesus judged the fig tree, he judged the temple. Verse 15 tells us, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. He goes to the temple into a hive of activity, religious activity, business, selling, buying, getting ready for sacrifices, and he puts a stop to it all. Bang, dead, done. as a picture of the destruction that is coming. Not the next day, like the fig tree, but the next generation. Less than 40 years after Jesus clears the temple, Roman soldiers raise it to the ground. So Jesus, God's king, comes in judgment on the fruitlessness of his own people. And we have to heed that warning The warning that if we don't bear fruit, if our faith is all show and no substance, we too will face judgment. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you go to Inspire Group on a Wednesday evening or Student Group on a Sunday evening and you're great at talking the talk. You know what you're supposed to do. You talk about your your, your thorny behavior, the things where you know that's not how God would want you to live. But if you look in your heart, there's no desire to change. You're just going through the motions. Maybe when you go to work, you've got a Bible verse on your desk or you've set a Bible verse as your screensaver. But in your heart, you know you live for the weekend. You do what we have to do to get by. But you get as much BBC News and Twitter in as you can. For, for me, I know I love to be seen as someone who's committed to sharing the gospel with their non-Christian mates. But in my heart... All too often, I don't believe that God can change people. That God can bring people to know him. And so I don't put any real effort in, because I don't expect any real results. I don't know what it is for you. Whatever it is, 
we've all got the same problem. Jesus is coming looking for fruit. And when he doesn't find any, when what he finds instead is show and hypocrisy, then judgment is coming. How then should we respond? What should we do? Well, Jesus' words in the last few verses of this uh, section, 22 to 25, they are difficult, they're confusing. Um, But one thing is very clear. It's all about faith. It's all about faith. Verse 22, Jesus says, have faith in God. Verse 23, anyone who does not doubt in their heart but believes. Verse 24, believe that you have received it. It's all about faith. Now, in our culture, which is all about self, our instinctive reading of these verses is to think that it's about the quality of our faith, right? I don't think it's just me. You look at these verses and you think, Jesus is saying that if, basically, my faith's inadequate, right? So it's all about the strength of my faith. And if my faith was strong enough, if my faith was pure enough, I could throw mountains into the sea. If my faith was strong enough, if my faith was pure enough, whatever I asked for in prayer, I would receive it. We turn, up, we turn these verses to be about us and our faith and the strength or otherwise of, of our faith. But Mark tells us that Jesus' words here aren't some kind of unconnected random musings on the nature of faith. They're an answer. Verse 22, have faith in God, Jesus answered. They're an answer to Peter's words in verse 21. What does Peter say? He says, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, I don't think Peter there is, is, is saying, oh man, Jesus, you've got some power. Look at that fig tree. No, I think Peter understands the significance of what's happened. So imagine being him. You've, you've seen Jesus speak words of judgment to a fig tree. You've followed him into Jerusalem. You've seen what he's done in the temple. You've heard him speak words of judgment on the temple. Now the next morning you come past that fig tree, you see the fig tree is dead you know what that means. It means the temple's doomed. The way that God is present with his people, the way that he hears his people's prayers, the way that we can receive forgiveness, that's under judgment. It's going to be destroyed. Look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. And Jesus answers Peter's concern by calling him to faith in God. Faith in God's plan for salvation. Faith that God, in some sense, will provide a new and better and truer temple. So faith that God will still answer prayer. Verse 24. Faith that that God will still forgive. Verse 25. And while Jesus' words in verse 23 can and have been interpreted in all sorts of different ways... I think what he's saying, I think what he's saying is that we can pray expectantly for God to be present with his people in a new way. I know that doesn't look obvious on the surface. Let me try and show you how I've got there. Okay, in Isaiah 40 and Zechariah 4, what happens when God comes to be present with his people in a radically new way is that mountains are leveled, right? You might remember that from Isaiah 40. Mountains are flattened out. And I think what's going on is Jesus is using that imagery to speak figuratively figuratively, of the destruction of the temple. 
This mountain, not, not a, any mountain or a mountain, this mountain, that is the temple mount on which the temple's built, will be cast into the sea. The destruction of the temple is somehow going to be part of God making a new way, a better way to be with his people. Regardless of exactly what Jesus means when he speaks of mountains being cast into the sea, the overall point is clear. We're to respond to coming judgment, not with despair, not with by trying to sum up, sum, summon up some kind of um, super mountain-moving faith from within ourselves, but by trusting God and having faith in him that he will find a way to be with his people, find a way to hear our prayers, find a way to forgive us, despite all of our sin and our, and our fruitlessness. How will God do that? Mark gives us a clue um, in verse 18. So come back with me there. Verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, that's Jesus' words of judgment on the temple, and began looking for a way to kill him. Jesus, God's king, comes in judgment, and immediately the plots begin to judge him. Jesus, God's king, comes to announce coming destruction, and immediately the plots begin to destroy him, to kill him. Judgment should fall on the leaders, on the people, on us, in our sin. But as we follow this story through to the end of Mark's gospel, we'll see that instead it falls on Jesus. That's the true humility of the king. A king who doesn't come just to announce judgment. But wonderfully comes to bear that judgment. To take it himself. Who comes to die. Humiliated on a cross. Dying the death that we deserve. So if we put our faith in him, if we trust in his death, in our place on the cross, then we no longer stand under judgment. Because judgment's already come. It's already fallen, and it's fallen on him. Instead, through faith in him, we have restored relationship with God. Through Jesus and his death, we have forgiveness. Through Jesus, our great high priest, God hears our prayers. Through the spirit of Christ, we have the presence of God with us. Not in a building, but dwelling in our very bodies. A king who comes in humility. A king who comes in judgment. And yet a king who in his humility, because of his humility takes that judgment on himself that we might be forgiven that we might be set free to know and love God to serve him and bear fruit for him will you put your faith in that king Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
Lord Jesus, we praise you that you came not just to announce the judgment that we all deserve, but to take it, to die for us. Lord, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve you to take our place, and yet you love us, and so you do it. Lord, we're sorry for all of our unfruitfulness, all the places that we are show rather than substance. Please, by your Spirit, change us that we might live lives that honour what you've done and setting us free from judgment. Free to bear fruit.